Hey everyone, we're back. Okay, 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 okay. Welcome to Trying to Be Kind, a podcast that looks at various gaming texts and under an academic lens. Hey everyone, it's been a while. Hello. I realize I seem to say that every opening. It's been a while. I think it's been a normal amount of time this time. Yeah, it's been like a month, right? It's been a month, Yeah. yeah. It's still a while though. Yeah, I don't get to hear your dulcet tones often enough. That's true. I mean, is it though? I feel like I hear all of you way too much. <laughs> you see, we're just Joe, coming. I hate you too. You see, prior <laughs> to this, Joe accused me of being horny, and thus now I feel like I need to own the role. Fair. I feel like Mar, you don't have much work to do there. <laughs> I thought you were just gonna say own Joe, and it's like. I mean, the internet does that, or you can just release a limited edition book and refuse to release a PDF. You see, that- <laughs> I, I almost did that this week, and then I relented. Oh my god! <laughs> Thank you. That would have been very bad. Okay, so now that we're moving on from the publishing version of edging, <laughs> <laughs> so we're been reading Trying the to be edged. Oh gosh, see, about see? Edge. Title. trying, trying, trying to keep it in. Um, okay. We're talking about vampires this time around, so yes, it might yes. not be the worst title. Okay, so today the book is Dangerous Games, What the Moral Panic Over Role-Playing Games Says About Play, Religion, and Imagined Worlds by Joseph P. Laycock, published by the University of California Press back in 2015. Okay, and yes, you are entering that part of the panic where we look more closely at the satanic panic and more uh, specifically the world of darkness and it's with that in mind that we need to ask the burning question that has been affecting the human race for decades now which is are you team edward or are you team jacob fiona oh, who you are yeah who you are of course Hi, fiona i'm fiona mave geist and i'm team jedward that is, I think Edward and Jacob should hook up. I don't know why they're involved with a woman they're not interested in. And um, Bella can get involved with Alice. Um, you know, some deep cuts there in my knowledge of Twilight, wow. a book series I've read. Well, uh, my name is Jared, and I think at this point in my life, the only thing I can really say is that I'm on team Robert Pattinson. Fair. Also stole my answer. Damn it. <laughs> uh I guess I'm Jody Simone. I am the uh, the guest of of this particular book on tape recording. I don't really know. Podcast about books. That's what I was trying to say. There we um, go. I haven't read any of them, so I don't really have an informed opinion. But you know what? If I if Robert Pattinson's already spoken for, um, <laughs> I, I'm fine with Kristen Stewart. She's a great actress. I'm very okay. happy to watch how uh, her career develops and has okay. developed since then. So, so sort of you making know. your own option there. I like that. Yeah, being contrary, just contrary. I hear she was really good in Crimes of the Future. She, she is was. really good in Crimes of the Future. Movie yeah. of the year. Yeah. I need to watch no. it. But it's, it's not free yet, so. I would say it's the second film of the year. I'm giving it to Everything Everywhere right now, but. Still haven't seen everything everywhere, so... so good! Alright, so moving more to the more culturally relevant Twilight. (laughs) 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 Hi, I'm Mahar, and if I were to be Team Edward or Team Jacob, I would have to be Team Edward. Not just because of our pets, but also because I would not have a crush on a baby. Yeah, it's tough. Poor Jacob got no love today. No, you know what? what I, you know, I, I have a question. With our what? Pads. I don't know no, why you true. think that's I don't. Whatever happened to Taylor Lautner? That's my question. Where is he at now? What's he doing? Oh, retired because he could never act in the first place. And I mean, I would retire if I made as much money as I assume he made. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Well, you know, and like wasn't actually good at the thing that I set out to do with my life, but got rich anyway. <laughs> Hell yeah, I'm retiring. Okay, so we're doing critical readings of books. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not on the. Is this because we had a theater a theater question in our mailbag? Yes, we have a mailbag. We're going to get to that at the end of the uh, episode. Um, but uh, definitely, I found it really funny that we're focusing on. You know, you know what? We should just become a movie podcast. We should just give up this whole academic thing. I would have so much more to say, to be honest. So. <laughs> 
and I, I, I don't like so movies either, so you. that works great for me. You know, I mean, <laughs> like, I think uh, I think we might be happier with. Um... Okay, so I mean, we've been. Uh, I have you go first, such Peter? contrary opinions in film. Like it would get us actually. Like, for example, I think Steven Spielberg is the worst director of all time, and Jurassic Park sucks. I don't like Jurassic Park either. Thank you. The only person with the right wrong. opinion. Jurassic Park is like an okay film right up until the moment when Laura Dern throws that gigantic switch and it becomes an action movie. Everything after that point is just not not worth my time. Okay. I'm just going to point Jurassic out that the Park? Michael Crichton book is better than the movie, and that's depressing because Michael Crichton's a great writer. <laughs> okay. Okay. Regarding Jurassic Park, we're talking the very first one, right? Just the very, very first <laughs> yeah. one? Because I've actually yeah. only watched the very first one. It doesn't Num- matter. None of them are good. Number one, I will forgive most things for gay icon Laura Dern. Number two, everyone wanted to get a Triceratops after she investigated his feces. That was pretty cool. Number three, shortless um, Jeff Goldblum. That's it. Jeff, that's, yeah, Jeff Goldblum was very good. Feces. Let's talk about the down and dirty work of the Satanic Panic and how it led to World of Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that's called a natural transition. Segue. Yeah, we're finally entering 1982 to 1991, so a part where finally I was born. So well, everything else to me was yeah. like, whoa, this was before we existed. Okay, and yeah, so this first topic it actually just investigates the satanic panic. Which, as an aside, so this article came out recently. I forget who wrote it, and don't really want to give more attention to this person, who then blames like. Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games for the dis- for the dissolution of the modern state known as American values, and I just want to go no, um, and it's just a panic all over again. So yeah, let's look at this uh, at this panic. And did anything in this uh, particular chapter like get to you three? I I am fascinated by the sort of one. It just starts with whenever people are like, oh, like you know, contemporary conspiracy theories are silly. How could anyone believe them? And it's like, man, most of America at one point, like a substantial number of people believed that like daycare centers were sacrificing children constantly. And it was somehow effectively covered up by a network of Satanists, which I don't know if you've met any Satanists, but they're fucking terrible at everything. Like, Anton LaVey is a fucking failure. He is a sad right-wing dweeb. But also how powerful those images were, and I thought that, like, you know, um, Laycock does a very good job of looking at the cultural malises that sort of animated that. You know, like, the fact that um, the increasing... um, between the private and the public sphere in which people were putting their children in daycares, the way that there was a belief that there was a satanic underground, the emergence of Michelle remembers, um, you know, the QAnon shit that America's always believed. So I, I thought it was an interesting chapter. I was just looking at the different ways of how the people who act very moral resemble people who are absolutely terrifying and would be recognized as absolutely terrifying with the with the clear-eyed vision of history supposedly like you have you know the usual you have the usual suspects of people saying that it actually became a part of christian or at least american christian identity to oppose um D and fantasy games like that and then Definitely. and then Going so far as to engage in book burnings, and this is not just in America, actually. I know of many friends whose parents confiscated and or actually burned their D&D books here in the, uh, you know, in the Philippines. So it was very much like the panic was so prevalent that you were doing something that was like book burning. I mean, book burning. Come on. <laughs> like I love the bit where the one person like wanted to raise a thousand dollars to buy and burn D D books and like the author just notes it doesn't actually affect tsr in any way what people do with the books they buy <laughs> this is just giving a thousand dollars to tsr I, I also think it's interesting how gaming responded to this right like the both 
publication of the TSR Code of Ethics, which probably is its own side episode at some point, but also, like, you know, the way that recruiting religiously associated gamers to debate theologically why gaming is not wrong, um, and also the, as Mahar mentioned, the persistence of the disenchantment thesis really up and into the recent, I think, Christianity Today article about Stephen Bannon um, realizing that although that article is more about MMOs, but like, you know, that people's second self that they use in games might be more exciting than them and that conflating that with your real person you know like making the avatar merge with yourself is actually a persistent political fantasy i mean come on it's it's a story you've heard before i mean it's a story we're still hearing now but basically like anything that any like is it safe to say that panic tends to be anything a conservative person needs to blame on something other than something that they're to blame for (laughs) depending on how we define conservative because i think like what's interesting to me especially in that chapter is how much tipper gore was part of the satanic panic and gave platform to this like i i I think that one of the failures of how a lot of people in the United States imagine the satanic panic is imagining it as only Southern and Midwestern Bible Belt conservatives rather than while some of the rationale was different, quite heavy in liberals. I mean, the same way that the, you know, super predators uh, chapter, um, you know, failed presidential candidate Hillary Clinton did some very great race baiting with the super predators thing once. Yeah, I, I, I think, think that's, that's a... Oh, go for it, Jeff. No, no, I was just going to say, I think that's probably the bit that, for me at least, was most uh, interesting about this, but we can we can cover that later. Just the, yeah. the shift from the pure satanic to, to just the, the vile. Yeah, it's interesting. There's some... There's sort of a narrative through line here that the book does kind of a half job of teasing out, I think where in the previous chapter, I think most of the, you know, the, the sort of pathways into madness chapter and then the history of the panic, sort of the, the pre panic stuff, it is, it, it began sort of centered on the, you know, Southern Baptist, etc. Um, so Southern American, Midwestern American religious contingent. Um, but by the time we get to where we're at now, which is, you know, once once you get to bad that is bothered about Dungeons and Dragons, um, the book does point out that um, the leader, I suppose, of bad was a, a, a secular uh, Jewish person. Um, and and that's that's an interesting note, because I, I think that's we've got this through line where bad sort of represent I think I touched on this in the previous episode as well where bad sort of represents the secularization of the panic where they're they're talking about satanism no longer as a threat to christianity necessarily or that's part of it but it's also a wider threat to a more secular country right that's uh and then that eventually in the next chapter once we get to the 90s will become the super predators thing that was so fucking terrible and, and rampant in the nineties in America. Okay. So let's um, look and at that's that. not a connection I would make necessarily. Yeah. So let's look at that. Right. So the rise of bad. So by 1981, just to like highlight wearing the book that Jared makes this point, D and D was firmly established as a demonic threat within the culture of the new Christian, right? However, the general public remained more curious than concerned. This changed after June 9, 1982, when 16-year-old Irving Bink Pulling of Hanover County, Virginia, committed suicide by shooting himself in the chest. Uh, Bink's mother, Patricia Pulling, blamed her son's death entirely on his involvement with D&D. Bink had been in a school's gifted and talented program, where several games of D&D had been offered as a reward for completing classroom assignments. In the months following her son's death, Pulling constructed a narrative in which Bink had been seduced, driven mad, and ultimately killed by fantasy role-playing games. This narrative resonated with a growing cultural concern about youth suicide. Later on in her book, uh, The Devil's Web, Who is Stalking Your Children for Satan, she describes how how the police 
first spoke to her upon her discovery of her son's body. When the police arrived, they allegedly asked, are you or are your husband devil worshippers? Pulling, pulling and her son were Jewish, and she initially assumed the question was anti-Semitic. The officers, the officers then presented D&D materials from her son's room and initiated the bereaved mother into the lore of satanic panic. And that might have been the moment, right? Like, it dovetailed with something else entirely. And so, mm. here we go. And, yeah, it's just another another cultural factor overlapping with another cultural factor and catalyzing something into something a lot more big. Yeah, and you see the shift in rhetoric. There's a There's a passage at the bottom of page 105 where he's talking about an argument made by someone named Bromley who if I remember correctly is the kind of person who like five years earlier would have been decrying you know like this is a threat to Christianity directly and specifically Um, but it becomes more of an economic explanation where it's this idea where you know it becomes American values right it's this uh, both parents have to work now and so we uh, outsource child care and that that means that uh, the the parents aren't as involved with their children and then they become uh, involved in this thing and so it's this vulnerability argument from an economic like loss of values situation and I think that shift in rhetoric from the earlier rhetoric that was very like they're worshiping demons right like that it's a very different kind of angle i think that's also the thing that's like very interesting is the through line of contentious belief i have law enforcement is inherently fucking lazy and that the satanic panic offered law enforcement the easiest way to demonize young people and create a post-hoc explanation for anything that would require them to do work or acknowledge social failures. I mean, we're going to cover this a little bit. But, like, yeah, and I think that's more germane to the 90s discussion, but I think that, like, it kind of comes in at the Pat Pulling bit of, like, I thought the police were anti-Semites, but actually they just believed religious stuff. It's it's the Simpsons uh, bit, right, Of, of Bart looking uh, dejected and Homer then comforting him. You know, this offers police the best way to demonize young people. And then Homer comes in and it offers the uh, best way for police to demonize young people so far. Um, (laughs) Then we get the super predators. Um, But yeah, Yeah. that'll be a next time thing. Maybe what's interesting is, and I think this does go under remarked on in Laycock to throw some you know criticism in is i think that even though it's very present in terms of what's discussed the way in which law enforcement was integral to the satanic panic um including that like just paying people to lecture them about how like demonic possession is real is really underheralded in terms of how both police legitimated it because i think like laycock even focuses more on geraldo and like sally jesse raphael which admittedly you know make a cleaner transition to the 90s and the super predators which feels like we're just skipping the satanic panic but i also feel like almost all of our listeners are aware that like dark dungeons is a chick tract in which the argument that D is both effective at teaching you magic and that it'll teach you how to cast like mind bondage on your dad to make him buy more D books which honestly if gary gygax were capable of it he would have done that because the dude did everything to try and make money like <laughs> I, I i don't think it's because of moral qualms that gary gygax didn't teach people <laughs> magic i think it's a lack of ability but yeah i think that was sort of the most interesting the most interesting element of the 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 rise of bad was this um, combination of, of the two rhetorics, which he does point to directly on page 108, where he says, eventually groups such as bad would merge these two threats, meaning the like Christian threat and the secular threat, suggesting that D&D was both psychologically dangerous because it led to delusion and spiritually dangerous because it contained elements of, quote, real witchcraft and demonology. Right, so they're sort of pulling out all the stops, um, but I, I, I think there's there's an element of that, the psychological angle, 
is one that um, allowed the satanic panic to keep going in a way. And it, the, I don't think the book really tackles that. Um, but I do feel like it would have been more concentrated in, um, in specifically religious circles and, and probably would have had a harder time spanning outward into the larger, like Phil Donahue's of the world. Well, you know, like it's, that's the nature of science, right? People use science to legitimize anything or they try to use the language of science to make things sound like they are more legitimate than they actually are. So it's one thing to say the devil possessed my child through a book. I mean, would people really believe you? But it's, it's another thing to say that these products um, created intimations of suicide and or false notions of power and frustration to the degree that um, it did so-and-so. Like, basically locking an actual psychological effect into an apparatus. Like, it's like, it's like D&D was this, is Satan's ideological state apparatus, so to speak. So, and so, like, but, it using, but using that language really uh, legitimized it. And they tried to go so far as to use this and they waged a war in two places. They waged a war in, in, in the media, and they waged a war in the courts. They really tried to, and going back to Fiona's point, they weren't just using like, they weren't just using the power of persuasion just to get people on it. They were using actors who are used as uh, legitimizers, like a court, like, like the government, basically trying to use the state and the options available to people in the state, like the police to get what they wanted, oh, yeah. which and is the, terrifying. Like, the silent majority air quotes, like long March through the institutions, like, you know, I mean, currently in the U S there's the focus on the abortion, anti-abortion aspect, but like it, it had a huge part in music, you know, although that's more nineties with the PMRC Although backmasking comes up a lot in this section on silly shit people believed, you know, it had the sex panic over pornography, which included the like right wing turn in feminism and the birth of anti pornography feminism. And, you know, you have like the AIDS crisis and also like various gender and sexual like panics of the 80s, but like in a weird way, I think those contexts make the satanic panic make more sense of like, the youth are deranged. Nothing makes sense anymore. Why are the youth deranged? Well, they're like imagining things in this game that has like heavy occult elements. Despite the fact that as an occultist, like D&D really does not, is overtly a Christian game. Like, including that the cleric's miracles are directly and absolutely Christological. Well, we, we, I mean, we covered that a little bit last time, right? Yeah. With, uh, I think it was Ken St. Andre's quote of starting tunnels and trolls because D&D was too overtly Christian. But I think also just to your point of like it, all these things giving really much needed context around how, how kind of batshit crazy people were at the time. I don't, I don't like that. I think it was Mahar earlier said, you know, someone, someone wouldn't quite believe them saying like, Oh, a book turned my child into a devil worshiper. And I'm like, like, no, the reason this could take root is because that's the level of sheer insanity of belief that people were dealing with at this time. Um, Oh yeah, definitely. I think that's, that's like yeah, that's it's it's a very difficult thing to like get our heads around. Um, Even now, when people are like fully enmeshed in deep insanity. Well, you know, well, like mean, it's, Joe, it's it's not so much as that. It's not people aren't incapable of it. It's just more of it's much easier to spread the panic around when you have language that people who are not as intense and you'd identify as moderate or rational when you have their language and the terms of like science and irrationality to, to substantiate the point. Oh yeah. 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 No, that, I mean, that makes plenty of sense. 
until, at least in the case of the Satanic Panic, you realize that none of this has any scientific backing in even the smallest way possible. Right, and I think that's why Michelle remembers, I think I'm getting the title right, is so interesting as, like, I mean, Laycock provides a summary, and it's like, yeah, this person claims from recovered memory hypnosis that they sacrificed hundreds of people, that they literally prevented the physical incarnation from of Satan, and that Satanists have a U.S. and worldwide spanning, like, conspiracy in which they're both effective, driven, and, like, organized that, like, I think makes Bercherism seem more normal, right? Like, it really <laughs> is hard to tell people, oh, yeah, communists are effective because, like, American communists aren't. Like, I'm not trying to be a mean person. It's just that, like, American communism, especially in the 70s and 80s, is not noted for its effectiveness in advocating for anything. They're actually like yeah, the that's... largest loss of workers' rights in the history of our country is over 20 years <laughs> that span the 70s to 80s. So yeah, like... that's, that's the point, right? Is like, don't, don't give it the veneer of of professionalism or credibility or any kind of logic when it it just doesn't have that and is flat out lying about itself having that like even the things that it points to within its own community of being the sensible bits are so easily debunked by anyone with two eyes and a brain that they, they wouldn't stand muster to a child. Um, that's, that's, I think, for me, like an important qualification here is to not, not make them seem any more rational than they actually were. Um, yeah, I, I, I hope this is coming across of, I don't believe these beliefs are rational. I think that they're rationalizing, right? Like, I think that they responded sure. to social phenomenon. I don't think they're based in fact. But it is interesting how, you know, if we want to geopolitically contextualize this, right, like communism lost some of its ability to motivate, you know, like mass movements in the United States against it because of both the fact that the United States mass deported communists and just didn't have many. But the idea that there was a secret religious and specifically religious conceptually evil organization especially elsewhere and in corrupted areas really did have such a powerful hold on people despite how fundamentally bonkers it sounds, right? Like, I mean, on the history of occultism in the United States, like Jack Parsons blew himself up or was blown up by L. Ron Hubbard and was probably the most like influential Satanist in the United States and was dead by the time D&D came out. I mean, he did perhaps pull off the Babylon working, though. So... Side mm-hmm. podcast in which we do conspiracy <laughs> theories about Jack Parsons yeah. later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The funny the funny thing about like Bad and the Panic, because Bad is identified in this chapter as very much a very active player in spreading the panic, was that in a way it ref- it kind of uh, reflects the behavior that they were saying that D and D was dangerous of. So like they were very much about how D and D takes you away from reality. D and D um, destroys you, and using like cultish behaviors, the usual psychological stuff. You had they were ten- turning themselves into experts in the occult, and then, but like any good any good cult like any cult the moment the leadership collapses um it loses its ability to um to do anything it was it seemed to me at least very personality driven um because you had someone like patricia pulling really just like you know pumping the bellows as, as strong as she could and then on other things i've read that when she died but much later on in 1997 Bad lost all the wind in its sails. 
because um and it's almost like hey look like it's almost like the counter D movement for lack of a better term or the panic movement also had this like had the same had the same elements that they were accusing D of supposedly possessing which i think is a rather interesting thing to do like there was very little self-reflection <laughs> here. And it, it really does make you wonder, like, why? I mean, in Pulling's case, it's because she was deflecting responsibility on her own behavior and what led to her son, unfortunately, killing, killing himself. But, like, it makes you wonder why so many people were willing to subscribe to it. Like, a bereaving mother finding a reason to blame something for her why her child died, I get. But for that to go nationally... That is still something I don't quite understand. And I'm not sure that the book really explains it beyond Fiona's um, argument that it was legitimized by by the state and having lazy police forces finding ways to, like, not do their job. Well, I, think, I mean, I think it's a there is kind of the point where he mentions the McMaster, I think, um, preschool trial, right, where and I think this is one of the things of you know, like a lot of people were really willing to believe there's a shadowy conspiracy. And I think like a thing that's under remarked about, about Americans of any political persuasion is that as a whole, the United States is full of people that are very willing to believe that there is a shadowy cabal. They disagree about what the shadowy cabal is, but many of them turn to anti-Semitism at one point or another. But sometimes they turn to D&D, you know, I think might be the most effective description, right? Like, I think it's easier to say that there must be a powerful satanic force at work than say that, like, children are depressed because we have a monotonous society that doesn't value people it's depressing <laughs> when you get down to it yeah <laughs> it's really really depressing i mean really like when you get down to it like a lot of the panic it's very tragic right yeah, i mean it's it's like it's it's the trag it's the result of people dealing because you had another uh, another father also who joined bad because his son had also killed himself is that i forget his name the former police chief guy from seattle but you know it's like the response to tragedy is is done in such a way that it is done to the detriment of of other people and to an activity that i mean like look i don't really like guy guy gags i don't really like I don't really like um I don't really like what TSR stood for in the 80s, right? They were they were a gross company in many ways. But no one deserves that. You know what I mean? It's just it's 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 tragic. When you when when you get down to it, it's a very tragic thing. Oh yeah, and I I think that one of the through lines in this is that D&D was popular with right like gifted students and library programs is one of the through lines in this chapter of like you know imaginative kids that didn't fit in well were drawn to D&D right like the generation of people that are currently grognards because the people that you know that that would make most of those people in their 50s right were drawn to the game because it was a reward that you know, absent the mass existence of video game systems was a chance to be creative and imaginative with other people that was sometimes offered through like institutions that were secular, like libraries and schools and moral entrepreneurs to use a term that honestly is very cringy, you know, found it easy to capitalize on. And as a other combination right on the path pulling thing is it easier to believe that your kid committed suicide because of a werewolf curse or because you know they were deeply unhappy with their life since you know as the book mentions he uh bink committed suicide on his parents porch so his parents would find him with a 38 revolver to the chest um that was his parents and it seems more like an act of revenge against his parents than 
because of a werewolf poem, but I don't think many adults want to admit that maybe they're bad parents and it's easier to blame a game. And it doesn't help that Gary Gygax is a hard person to defend as someone who spends my entire time reading this book of being, yeah, D&D was probably great comparatively, but God, it's hard to love like the old D&D with how much it capitulated to moral panics. I mean, like, but, it was, it, I mean, you know, it had gotten so bad. And I, I thought this is rather interesting. Like, the, you know, like the, the actions done to get D&D, like, to erase D&D from, from society included things like, you know, school, school bans. Because like you mentioned, Fiona, a lot of these things were done in school programs, library programs. So they were thinking of, of they were thinking that they should ban the game. And many states actually did. So in the wake of Pulling's campaign, schools in Connecticut, Vermont, New York, Virginia, Colorado, Wisconsin, California, Ohio, and New Mexico banned D&D. But then what I found really interesting was that the fight supposedly got so bad that they made a new claim, which is that D&D is a religion. <laughs> and thus, <laughs> its presence in public schools, to quote, violates the separation of church and state. And considering the actors here, I'm just kind of like, wow. So one, uh, one document explained that, uh, to quote, the Supreme Court has ruled that religion is not to be taught in schools, public. Currently pending the courts are some 2,500 cases filed by the ACLU aimed at getting religion out of public schools. Clearly, religion is not to be taught in public schools or related programs. And then they say D&D is basically a religion. Why? As someone explains, witchcraft, Satanism, and occult practices are incorporated in the game. If a kid can't talk about God, he certainly shouldn't be allowed to talk about Satan. If one were to have a game where one had figures or characters from a Bible and one was required to act out the liturgy of the mask, I'm sure there are a lot of people who would object. And it became, and in, in particular, this was, this was lifted from a claim done in Putnam, Connecticut and Sacramento, California, where having D&D clubs in school was tantamount, to quote the book, to state sponsorship of witchcraft. And I'm just kind of like, wow, they're using arguments that I'm assuming were used on them that worked. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, if we can't have God, then they should not have the demon in the game, in the, in the school. And it's kind of like, oh my gosh, this is, this is next level. I mean, it's, just, it's heady. I mean... It's, it's, it's a rationalization of just someone being so fundamentally petty. Because all it is, is you're right, it's something being denied them swinging back the other way. Jared, I think any... this section more than any other is the one that probably made me just angry about the panic. So I think my general mood about the panic is just sadness. But like seeing the underlying psychology of the people who made the most of the panic for their own purposes, it's just very, very upsetting because of how in some ways just stupidly fucking banal it is. I mean, I think we can all agree. This was this this was bad. This was bad, and they had done everything in the courts. They had did everything they could do in in the media, and they were doing all sorts of things as a result. They even went so far as to say that D and D was used as a defense for certain crimes. So, anyway, at the at the end of all of this, I guess. This was just with the D&D, which I think might segue us to um, what we'd already referred to. Exactly. Like, could you imagine? (laughs) Could you imagine? Like, the satanic panic on D&D was already bad. Could you imagine (laughs) now? And I am truly curious as to what this would mean when you look at the world of effing darkness, (laughs) which is the next decade. We've been full of good segues, so that segues to the world of darkness, the 1990s yes, the onwards. Best, most brain damaging game. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, the gr- game that caused the forge. Is this the game the that game caused the forge? The forge? The forge agrees with the Satanic Panic. I'm just going to mm-hmm. point out that, like, replace 
becoming a Satanist and or depressed or suicidal with brain damage and you have Ron's thesis. And that's when we got canceled. My buddy Ron. That was the moment we got canceled, friends. When Fiona said that the Forge and the Satanic Panic agree with each other. Not I'm all of the glad things. To be on the like, show. I'm, I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say, obviously, the number of queer and otherwise people that the Satanic Panic wouldn't accept um, is real. That Gabe's of the Forge tried to address social issues that certainly the reactionary elements that are necessary for the satanic panic would deeply object to, but like the belief that you can imagine wrong and imagining wrong makes you bad, um, is very much what links the two. I have thorough notes on this for when we probably the next episode when we do part two. Okay. Um, yeah. I've got, I've got like deep connections between satanic panic and Ford's thought just to get everybody prepared. Oh my God. This episode is kind of the ripping off the gift paper to get to the real gift, which is when we get to talk about theory. <laughs> yeah. Like, the I, part I two like is where the theory book. turns on. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I, I like this book. I think it's a good history. I like how it weaves the narrative of fear of your children and or like belief that there's something wrong with children and traces sort of the evolving like heuristics for describing that you know from like the alienated you know imaginative lost in a dream world kid to the super predator is kind of this transition we're about to cover and you know it does talk about the social aspects around it but really when it gets into how games are religion is where I think this book shines. Um, that said, well, I, I really like the world of darkness chapter. So someone yeah. should kick us off. Okay. Well, let me see if I can characterize this, this chapter a little bit. It seems to me that we could point to like a marked change in the tenor of say vampire, the masquerade versus D and D and that we can sort of point to a, a similar or corresponding mark change in the way the Satanic Panic presented itself in relation to that. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of point at um, let me see where's a good example. He talks about it a good bit. So here on page 139, um, there's this just a little sentence that says games like Vampire the Masquerade and Werewolf the Apocalypse offered characters who battled their inner monsters as much as outer ones. And I think this is, this is really important to my, my personal conception of world of darkness as a person who's never played world of darkness and only has like a vague understanding of what it is. I do. I am very familiar with the Mark Greenhagen editorial in the back of early editions of VTM called, I think it's called red in tooth and claw. And it's fascinating. I, I really encourage everyone to go read it. Um, because he basically lays it out. It's this like back and forth argument where Reenhagen lays it out that like, this is a game about catharsis. Basically we're going to exercise all of our demons in this fictional space. And it's going to make us better people. Right. It's kind of the, the moral of the story. It's at the back of the book. Right. So Um, there's this, there's this very, it's almost playing into the, the fears of the satanic panic but trying to reframe it in a positive light, I think. And it, it, I don't know. I just, it's really fascinating. I, it, I'm surprised that this book doesn't specifically cite that editorial, but it's very tied um, for, for this book, at least it's very tied to sort of Gen X disillusionment. And so there's a good bit of that in there. On, uh, on page 154, there's a paragraph they think summarizes this chapter very perfectly, which is, while the second generation of role-playing games met with far less resistance and criticism than did TSR's games, the trend towards darker, more realistic fantasy renewed confusion among outsiders about where the line between fantasy and reality should be drawn. This confusion was compounded by the fact that many role-playing games of the 1990s explored themes of moral decadence, criminality, and urban decay at the same time that politicians and the media were promoting a myth of moral poverty and an impending crime wave. This made it easy for moral entrepreneurs to repurpose role-playing games, incorporating the symbolism of these games into their own fantasies of a fallen society. Right. And then 
because I think there's a lot of stuff in this chapter that I think people should read the book, but there is just a history of the core five of the world of darkness. There's Steven Jackson games versus the FBI. There's a bunch of stuff, but at the core of it, right, is sort of, at least in the thesis that Laycock presents, and I'm not going to argue with it on this episode, right? Like Amber Diceless into Ars Magica represents a shift of troop play and like, quote, you know, like the red and tooth and claw thing Jared is mentioning, um, a greater emphasis on the idea that the world is kind of shit and that you're not like a redeeming hero in the way that I don't actually think D&D had them, but at least Dragonlance era did that there was kind of a synchronicity between both a greater secular and wider view of, you know, a moral nihilistic young people, Gen X stuff, and also a greater number of games, which were concerned with the idea that, you know you're not playing a hero you're playing a villain and you're also playing a you know vampire the masquerade at denny's at two in the morning that is very specific fiona but yeah i think this chapter is really concerned with getting at the the way that white wolf games specifically those those core five games um expand upon and complicate the religious function that he's already pointed to with D&D. Um, so you get a lot of, especially with Werewolf, because I think it's probably clearest with, with Werewolf, you get a lot of like, like this is why those books have such um, specific cosmogenies, you know, is they're, they're playing with reframing the world and like the, the ontological reality of the world in such a way that we can um, and this will he'll get into like anti-structure later, but um, so it's in such a way that, that we can imagine um, alternate readings of our world, right? Um, and that that's part of the religious function of these games. Um, and it's, it's turned up and it's pushed in several different directions with each game. And I think that's, that's part of the, the change and also the, the amplification of the expression of the satanic panic in the nineties. In a way it became more accessible. Like the idea of, of, well, I guess generationally speaking, uh, there's a, there's a specific thing said here where basically gen X wasn't their baby boomers who the baby boomer gamers were into D and D because they were trying to have the fantasy of making good happen and the sunny the sunny happy ending happening whereas the world of darkness was really just trying to make sure that the world that had hurt them would not would not hurt them anymore as much and so from there it then becomes this whole like again that talk about the super predator of these like this generation of youth that were just innately violent like some kind of natural apex animal who are just out to destroy other people with violence and, so, and it's interesting, hmm. I think, to read this in terms of that shift in rhetoric we talked about a moment ago, um, where it was secularized, right? And we get into this, like, these economic explanations. And uh, I think this is sort of the next step along that path where we get, we get down into this idea of super predators. And um, it's moving away from the, the sort of brainwashing narrative and into... Um, basically these quote unquote super predators who are just born evil, right? It's, it's, there's an inherency to it rather than being preyed on by some cult, some sinister cult and brainwashed. They, they are themselves the evil of society, right? Yeah. Um, and like I think Michael Myers. Like natural yeah, like, I, think <laughs> I think it's important to point out that that rhetoric is happening inside of, on the one hand, dropping crime rates uh which is cited on 141 that like all crime rates in from the like early 90s from 1990 to 95 were were dropping pretty significantly but also <laughs> but also with the with the advent of this like three strikes policy a very common three strikes policy across the u.s there was a huge prison expansion also 
right? So these two things are kind of happening simultaneously, and in between them, we have this super predators rhetoric. I think providing connective tissue for it is the sort of, and you know, the book covers it, the vampire cults. I don't know a better word for it, but like the charismatic leader, um, multiple sex abuser, etc. Like people insisting that they in some way are vampires and also borrowing at least trappings from Vampire the Masquerade. Mm-hmm. that also in some ways are advertising for VTM, not like intentionally, but like, right. Like a lot of ideas about what vampires even are at this point are heavily influenced by VTM. Like, you know, um, Laycock mentions the underworld movies paid an undisclosed sum to white wolf for the fact that their plot is kind of lifted from that. Uh, true blood is someone's home game of world of darkness to some degree. I've never read the books. I've seen a couple seasons of the show, but like the vampires literally follow to a T the organization of vampires in VTM down to there being a sheriff, Primark, etc. I but, mean, you had Anne Rice novels also, like, <laughs> making their big splash oh, yeah, in the I 90s. Mean, well, and Poppy Z. Bright, I think, is who now is Billy Martin, but um, those books were published under the previous name. Um, but, like, you know, Lost Souls, I think, which came out in 92, has, like, a lot of the sort of 90s bisexual murderous vampire energy that's a bit more Gen X than... Um, Anne Rice was but yeah also Anne Rice like Anne Rice is huge for VTM <laughs> if the Vampire Lestat was not published there would be way less of all of this yeah so like the it's just basically seeing the panic change into into this like well okay so the, what the elephant in the room basically is that crime rates were dropping but what people were noticing was quite a lot of crime being done by privileged white youth. And I think what it's, I think it's basically said here in this book that what was happening is once again, you had a culture that was unable to really deal with the fact that it did not want to accept what was really going on in the same way that the panic was like, you know, you had these parents who could not accept the fact that their children probably had suffered under their either negligence or active uh, influence on their lives, and that's why they killed themselves. You now have a society that's looking at, hey, we are, you know, we have crime. We have certain crimes which are angry white boys. Um, Columbine is mentioned specifically. And then, and then look, uh, they're doing this. What would make these, what would make these like, middle income upright middle income white boys so angry and it's going to be you know gothic things and anything with the trappings of being gothic and dark and so on so on and forth and that is why you have this super predator myth and that is why you have this focus on again rpgs it's kind of gross so there's a strong argument that this book sort of slowly mounts around these games that functionally gen x is you know, we, we've got all the standard claims about Gen X and disenchantment and all of those things. Um, and also the general sort of uh, secularism of American society at the time, um, which had been sort of in place since the 80s and growing, I think. Um, and then this, there's this argument that sort of starts to t- pick up around page 166, where the, the, the author is sort of positing role play in general, but specifically... Um, the White Wolf games as good exemplars of this as um, uh, a religious function that that children could turn to in the face of that hopelessness that marked their generation. And he even describes it as a kind of consolation prize, which I thought was pretty pretty cute. But you end up with um, with this idea that again, and, and we, he, he sort of restates the, this idea that games allow us to construct an alternate version of the world so that we can inspect our world and produce an alternate version of it or, or 
produce an alternate understanding of it at least. Um, so it's it's sort of White Wolf games and and the the culture of the '90s sort of take that to a really clear and and larger place. I think this is actually making me depressed. <laughs> it's like, can I just stay? Yeah. This here's a here's a funny anecdote from Mark Reinhagen. If you want to hear that one, I love it. Go. So he talks. He's talking about writing Wraith, and how he, he apparently in in Wraith he writes that uh, quote unquote Wraith is cursed. Yeah, he tells this story at some point where, and this is in the book, that apparently they were playing Wraith, and then the power went out, and they heard like a car crash at the same time, and outside the pizza delivery man had crashed into a transformer. And I just think that's the most RPG thing imaginable. <laughs> no, that, that, that is. And as someone that's currently in a Wraith game, like, Wraith is fucking weird. You're in a Wraith game right now? Yeah, but I don't show up a lot. But the bright side is that my character's shadow has basically become the primary antagonist. So me showing up actually suspends things happening. I like it. Great. I mean, honestly, not just Wraith, but like World of Darkness properties in general are considered cursed in video game development circles. Well, that's a no. That makes sense, that's a yeah. different uh, episode entirely. <laughs> um, but yes, you know, very true. Megan is a guest. Do you think he would ever show up? Who? Wait, who? Could we ever get Mark as a guest? Like, do you think Mark Reinhagen would show up? On what could podcast? he possibly be doing more important than this? <laughs> You heard it first here. We're going to someday talk to Mark Reinhagen, which will just be Jared being contrary at Mark Reinhagen <laughs> about the Red and Tooth and Claw essay. Do oh, either I love of you, the Red and Tooth and Claw essay. Do you, either of you actually know this person? Oh, no. Uh, no. I mean, he's like actually famous. He worked in TV. Like, I like the Vampire the Masquerade soap opera. I think it's good. <laughs> the fact that you call it a soap opera is telling. Yeah, I mean, it, it's straight up. It's soap made opera. by the oh, person that made Melrose Place. <laughs> like Aaron Spelling, up a soap opera. I think so. It it, it is like Tari Spelling's father. Different, probably. I mean, <laughs> oh it is a very God. like that. That look, just makes my day. Kendrick if that is true, is I'll be so happy. Good. What's the yeah, name of the show? Produced by John Leakey Productions and Spelling Television. Oh my god, this is brilliant. This, oh, okay, I was feeling sad. Oh. Now I feel much better. <laughs> Yo, Mahar, like, seriously, you should watch it with me sometime. It's a lot of fun. Where can I watch it? What's the though? name of the show? Kindred, Kindred the Embraced. Embraced. Oh, that's such a terrible name for a television show. Mm-hmm. It should have just been called oh, The Embraced. Or look, Kindred. There's an episode where I, I watched it with a friend and we worked out that the reason that they even have a um, Leonard Cohen song for the episode is probably that it's about at the time that Leonard Cohen's agent was just stealing money from him and licensing his music for nothing. Poor guy. Okay. 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 Let's get back on track here because basically I think we've covered the major parts of this, of these, of the history really. Um, the the white wolf uh chapter basically ends because i think this is the kind of thing where you know this is this is not a podcast about just saying what a book says right i mean it is an endorsement of the book that i think we like repeating a lot from it and pointing out to the examples that the book shows um but what really makes i think the book at this particular juncture important is that it explains very much so what we need to interpret like it really like yeah. like it really like we, we we really need to know what the material is because um it's relevant because i mentioned at the very start of this episode that there's there's this article coming out where you see the satanic panic you know once again doing a redux of itself but also because even from previous podcast episodes like in different materials like different actually different things other than the cinderbrush episode um we are looking at a time once again where people seem to think that discourse is always fresh and that they always seem to have had like this original take on so on <laughs> on something and i'm just kind of like it's not okay we've lived through this before and we will probably live through it again um i think the more important thing perhaps being is why is it that why is that the case 
I, was, I mean, I started playing games during this era. Yeah, I mean, I had friends who told me that I was going to go to hell because I played Dungeons and Dragons in the 90s. And I'm kind of like... Okay, so is the question, why does this seem to keep repeating itself as well, a cycle? Yeah, well, not just that, but more like, you know, what are the what are the functions that it does that I think... There's lots... I mean, part... I don't want to... I don't want to... I don't want to preempt part two. <laughs> I mean, it's just <laughs> the like... The social function know, of an anxiety You is... know, it's like... Uh, how do I say this? Part two, we'll talk about, like, you know, the dovetailing of religion with, uh, with D&D and how people find solace in it. And maybe that is why it is such a threat to the point it's existential to organized religion. Who am I to say something? Okay. So, <laughs> on that note... Well, I think... On that note... Uh, do you want to get to our mailbag? Because we actually have a mailbag. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have our first mailbag. Well, in a while. We've had mailbag before. Yeah. Okay, That's so true. here's the question. Okay. There's a couple questions in there. There are a couple questions. Okay, so of course my computer's hanging right now. Can you um, can you hear me? Well, I, I've got it up. I can read it. Okay, read it, read it, yeah. <laughs> so the first question is, thoughts on games as ritual? question mark yes 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 they are yeah <laughs> they they are um yeah they, they are they're more than that and, and i think the like ritualistic nature of games discourse gets a little out of hand sometimes but yeah yeah 100 mm-hmm. the second one discourse that's fiona's game discourse part one actual play win i mean jared wrote the example of play and that's the only actual play it'll ever need <laughs> you should have an yes, episode. I did write that example of play. That's true. Wait, I thought I was going to write the example of play. <laughs> For this one? Should, no, I'm joking. You I'm should not. write another example of play. Do it. We should yeah. have competing examples of play. Hell yeah. Where we'll we do a Mahar uh, edition <laughs> for the game that I still need to print and compile the second volume well, of and actually mail. Yeah. Since I think three people in here are backers. So. Well, you know, I have a game where I've released it and it still hasn't reached people. And I've, I'm, I'm kind of like, I don't know what to do. So <laughs> we're in the same boat. Oh, here's the last one. Brecht or Artaud? My problematic BF, Artan Artaud, is um, perfect. Theater of Cruelty is very good. And even his poetry is good, despite the fact I don't understand poetry or even pretend to comprehend it. Jared, do you Brett's have any? Okay. I don't. I don't know anything about theater. Um, I. I don't think. And I also like don't really read like uh, literature and translation. So I kind of got nothing on this. My. Um, you should my, read yeah. Theater of Cruelty. I would actually be interested in your thoughts on it. My spicy like, is that take. The book, theater of yeah. Yeah, it's, That's it's about That's... how to do theater a certain way. Yes. I mean, I know of the concept of theater of cruelty. I didn't know that there was a book yeah. specifically called. Yeah, Arto did it. But okay, mine mine is neither. Please no. I can take <laughs> enough of Brechtian analysis. The number of times people tell me, my gosh, Mahar, they broke the fourth wall. I'm just kind of like, that's called a conversation. <laughs> okay. We, we literally don't worry about that. I mean, seriously, you should not be shocked by someone talking to you. Um, even if it's from a stage and breaking character or whatever. And then uh, as for Arto, I'm just kind of like, it's a long, it's a long, uh, it's a long misgiving I've had with socialist theater. Sometimes I'm not going to get into it, but it sometimes it just irritates me because it's, I don't know. You know what? It's probably not Arto's fault. It's probably the fault of people who are so, so proud that they're they're devising using theater of cruelty when i'm just kind of like i don't like devised works which do not engage in conversation and in the production so whenever anyone shows me something it's theater of cruelty and i'm just kind of like you're basically shouting at me because i don't feel like i'm part of the conversation because the devising did not have me involved in it so no thank you i don't need your oppression with your idea of what i should be socially aware of so no okay that's it <laughs> that's that's that was a lot a lot of opinions that's me that's me and <laughs> i think we touched a nerve I, yeah <laughs> very simple for me uh, i saw a breck performance at the public like 10 years ago with willem defoe in it and he hung dong uh 
real fucking big. And that was a highlight of that year for me. Okay, hell yeah. Did he speak uh, directly to the audience? He did, and uh, was wearing a duck suit and a diaper. Rad. I mean, William that, Defoe. That's actually pretty good. Where this hell of a performance. This might be apocryphal, where apparently his dong is so large that when he had nude scenes in movies, they needed to find body doubles with smaller dongs because the big dong would have distracted everyone from the plot of the movie. Nope, that's <laughs> legit, and it's very specifically Von Trier's Antichrist. Really? Yeah. Wow. Look, people came here for RPG analysis, and they got, like, a face full of dong. I mean... I mean, what is analysis but face full of dong? <laughs> I mean, the ancient Greeks thought that's how you exchanged information. Just uh, okay. put dong in person, and then they learn from you. You know what? I think that that the is a great... The ancient Greeks also didn't know how to, like, not poison themselves with, like, lead, so I don't think that they were geniuses, but... I don't know. They figured out a lot for such backwards people. They might have had a, a good idea about this whole dong theory. On that note, <laughs> dong you know, theory. follow us on Twitter at Kind Trying Games Three. <laughs> dong theory. <laughs> and next week we're going to get into part two of the book when we see deeply the actual, dare I say, theological implications of RPGs. Theological. The, we're going to no, do it's some straight theory. up theological. It's theological. Yeah, I'm, I'm into it. I'm going to wear so my priestess finally when I was brought on for. I'm going to wear my priestess robes for those episodes. I'm, oh, I'm very excited. See if I can get some a miter and I'll wear it. We should dress up like you know, we're all in the cast of Midsummer. <laughs> when I was in my twenties, I was um, considering converting to Catholicism so I could become a Jesuit. So don't do it. That pretty much. No. That's what yeah. No. Yeah, that was what like a big, big goal for me. Ever said. And I literally, I went to, I went and talked to a, a priest, a Jesuit priest, and um, I hope he discouraged. I him. was like, the, the conversation basically went like this. I showed up and I was like, hey, so how bought into this whole Jesus thing do I need to be, actually? And he goes, pretty bought in, and I was like, no, but really. <laughs>